had the date wrong for the memorial service. It's on the 7th, which is a week from this coming Saturday. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you, Father God, that you not only tell us what to do, you give us the power to do it. And I pray that today, as we study this passage, as threatening as it is, that you would help us to understand that you have not only told us what you want from us, but you've given us all the resources to take us there. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So I asked you to name the first physician ever to do a heart-to-heart -heart transplant. Ever, anyone remember his name? Mm. Christian Barnard was his name. December the 3rd, 1967. At Grotesque Hospital in Cape Town. So, of course, South Africans. When he did that surgery, he was assisted by a team of 30 people, and at his side was his brother, Marius Barnard. Uh, the man who received the heart was 56 years old. He was dying of, of irreversible heart disease. And as Dr. Barnard put the new heart, which came from a young woman who'd been killed in a car accident, as he put that heart in and restarted it, Marius said, he said, it works. <laughs> That would be a good thing to know if you were the, the patient, you know, hanging under there like, it worked? Oh, good. Yeah, the patient unfortunately died after 18 days, but his heart beat all the way up to the end. He died from pneumonia. But that was the first one, and then they did a whole series of them, and each time managed to expand it a little bit further. I hope I never need to have a physical heart transplant. But several years ago, I had a metaphysical heart transplant. Now, meta means beyond physical. And the heart we're going to talk about today is, is found throughout the scriptures. Way over 950 mentions of the heart, and most of them have to do with the metaphysical heart. Just as our bodies have a physical heart, our souls have a metaphysical heart. And a friend of mine came to me shortly after I started preaching, and he said, Raymond, what if you weren't a preacher? What would you do for a living? And I said then, as I would say now, there isn't anything in second place. I don't know. He said, come on, think about it. If you were not a preacher, what would you want to do? And it's kind of like, oh, I don't know. I suppose I'd want to teach. Uh, okay, maybe you'd want to teach something, but I'd want to be teaching something that really is, helps people with their lives. He said, what else? I said, I don't know. Um, I'd, taken a, uh, I'd been on the radio in Kansas City from our college. Maybe I'd want to go back to radio or TV. And my friend said to me, did you notice that everything you want to do has you on a platform? Like, oh, hello. He said, so why are you on the platform as a pastor? And I had to think about it and said, well, okay, I like being on the platform. You know, weird thing, I'm never self-conscious except at a time like this, <laughs> ever. I said, I never feel self-conscious at all. And I said, well, you know what? I, I, I realize that there's, there's the danger of wanting to be on the platform and wanting to, to be in front of people, but I genuinely also love teaching the scriptures. And he said, okay, realize that you've got mixed motives. You don't have a fully pure heart, but let's focus on the good part of what you just told me. 
And that friend's name was Jesus. <laughs> and it was one of the things that he took me through, and I'm so thankful that he took me through it. Because what I discovered that is over the years, when somebody else was in my pulpit preaching, I wasn't threatened. It was wonderful. It was kind of like, cool, as long as they were good. Yeah, love to hear you preach. Just found that that little piece went away from me. But unfortunately, that wasn't the only piece of impurity inside of my soul, inside of my heart. And over the years, over and over again, I found that there are other things inside of me Mixed motives, impure thoughts, impure feelings that have to deal, be dealt with before God. And because God is committed to making us more and more like his son, he doesn't give up and keeps working on that. Now, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, so you'll just have to follow along with me. We've been doing the Sermon on the Mount, and the, passage, the section of the sermon we come today talks about how God does a soul heart transplant inside of us to create in us a pure heart. We've been using, I've been using a diamond to describe what happens with the, what are called the Beatitudes. And what I believe the Beatitudes describe for us is how Jesus gains access to us, and once he has access, how he shows up in our lives. When we're poor in spirit, about the fact that we recognize I'm spiritually poverty-stricken, I cannot earn a place in heaven. He gives me heaven because, for faith in Jesus Christ. If I ever mourn about sin, he comforts me and he strengthens me. I have to humble myself before him in order to be able for these things to happen. And then he creates in me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Makes me want to become more like him. As I become more like him, I discover I become more merciful and then pure in heart. Okay, now, this one is tough. Because all the rest we can fake. This one, we cannot. We can change our behaviors, we can look good on the outside... But God says, I want you to be pure at the core of your being. I want you to become pure in heart. And as you study the scriptures, God over and over again said, I don't look on the externals. I don't look at your behavior. I don't look at what you're doing. I look at who you are down in the core of your being. We read in, in Matthew that Jesus was teaching his disciples. It says, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, when a rabbi sat down, it was a signal. I'm about to teach you something very, very important. And the disciples gathered around him. When you watch Jesus do the Beatitudes in movies, he's always walking around, and he's just speaking out loud, and as, you know, uh-uh, that's not what happened. He called his disciples to him. The crowd heard. The crowd was astonished at his authority, but he's speaking to us. He's speaking to those who are already his apprentices. And he's telling us, this is what will happen to you once you put your faith in me, once you start to follow me. These are the changes that are going to come about in your life. And one of those significant changes, he says, is that you will become pure in heart. In fact, he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. And blessed can be summed up this way, the most privileged recipient of the sum total of all that God has for us. That's what it means to be blessed, is to receive everything from God that he wants us to have during this life especially, and in the life to come. The opposite of blessed is woe. And you'll see that in a while when we get to that one passage. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said to the religious leaders who were all focused on the externals, he said, woe are you. Woe to you. Because, and this didn't make him any friends, he said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all pretty. But on the inside, you're dead and filthy and corrupted. And so... 
To be blessed, it means to receive from God everything he wants for us to have. Follow that. Just go through the, 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 um, the Beatitudes and notice that God says, I want to bring into your life all the best that I possibly can bring into your life. For example, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We become people who are going to inherit the earth, the new world, when it comes into existence. We come, become people who are like Jesus, merciful in the hearts and lives of others. We're peacemakers uh, in that. There's one little one at the end which is a little bit un un unnerving, and that is you become hated for being holy. But we'll get back to that in a while. That's, that's a blessing as well that comes from it. But when Jesus says, blessed are the, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When he uses the word heart, again, it's speaking about the metaphysical part of us. It's the inner core of who you are. That person who's listening to me right now, and that person who's thinking, I wonder what we're going to have for lunch. That's your heart at work. Okay, That's the inner core of you. Now, when we use the word heart, we, in our day and age, think of emotions. Emotions are there, but that's not how the Bible used it. Emotions are one of the pieces of the heart. There's your intellect, your emotions, your will, your motivations, your character. It's the sum total of who you are. Your soul has a metaphysical heart. And that metaph metaphysical heart is the definition of who you are. It's where we experience life. It's where we think. It's where we plan. It's where we hope. It's where we dream. It's, it is that part of you that melts when you fall in love. It's that part of you that simmers in anger. I remember my grandmother would take, uh, we, had, we had so many kids. I was the first of like 700 dozen children who were born into our family. Each of my mom's sisters had babies and their babies had babies. And I remember one of the things my grandmother would do is take a baby or a child, sit them on, on her lap, and then she'd put her hands on either side of their face and look deep into their eyes. Oh! You know she was looking into their souls when she did that. You know, one of the sad things is, long after she died, I thought, I wonder if I ever did that for her. And I wish I had. I wish I'd taken her face in my hands and just said, Mom, I want you to know I love you. If only I'd done that and looked into that soul. And that's what God does with you and me. He doesn't look on our externals. He looks down into our souls. And when he looks into our souls, he does so with love. And because he's committed to us. And when he looks into your soul, that's where your character lives. That's who you are on the inside. When nobody's watching. When nobody knows what's going on. In fact, nobody ever knows what's going on inside there except God. And it's a place where you connect with God. Now, where body, soul, and spirit, your soul is where your heart is. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God comes in. And you're lit up again. But it's the soul that can connect with God. It's the heart, the place where God makes that first connection. But the Bible's honest about us. And that is, it says, tells us that there's something wrong with our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? That shows up when you do things like, oh, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. What are you thinking? Those kind of times is when that shows up inside of us. And one of the things that, that our society did in the 70s and 80s and 90s was desperately trying to tell us, you're okay. You're good. You're basically good. If you've got any flaws inside of you, blame your parents. Blame society. Blame anybody. But you're basically okay. Remember that book, I'm okay, you're okay? I'm not okay. 
None of us are okay. There's things inside of us that the Bible is honest. It's beyond cure. I cannot cure the things inside of me that have gone wrong. And people try to cure themselves through religion. They try to cure themselves through philosophy. They try to, there's no way we can cure ourselves. There's something inside of us that is corrupted and we can't cure it. Who can understand it? We don't even understand our own selves. But God can. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. God says, I can get down inside and I can see you from the inside out, all the way out to your behaviors. But now, God made a plan from eternity past to deal with that internal corruption. And he gave us, uh, there are two significant covenants. A covenant is a one-sided promise, commitment from God. And the first covenant was the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments. And he told Israel, as long as you obey my commands, I will bless you. When you disobey my commands, I'm going to have to discipline you. And so he warned them that. And he gave them that covenant. Now, all of us have grown up, most of us have grown up knowing the Ten Commandments. And if we're honest, and Jesus is going to come back to this, we realize we don't keep the commandments. We don't keep any of them. We can't possibly keep the Ten Commandments. And so the problem with that first covenant was it showed us what God wanted from us, but it had no power to change us. But that's because God had ready another covenant. And he describes that covenant to us in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And he says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is called the new covenant. It was the new commitment that God said, I'm going to do, and we live in that day and age. It was future when God said it through Ezekiel, we live in this day and age. When you believe in Jesus Christ, put your faith in him. God takes away your heart of stone, and he builds a heart of flesh inside of you. And it's a process. One thing to never forget about all of this, by the way, is that all of this change that God brings into our lives is, is called fruit for a very good reason. Fruit grows slowly. We don't jump to being perfect. We grow toward the place where God wants us to go. And he says, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then watch this. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Notice what God does. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He says, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. And my spirit will move you. My spirit will carry you in that direction. My spirit will give you the power to do it. S several years ago, I was walking through King of Prussia Mall in, in Philadelphia. If, if you ever get to go to uh, Philadelphia, plan to go to the King of Prussia Mall. I think it's now the biggest in the country. It's because they had two malls that now joined. Unbelievable mall. It's just incredible. If you like malls, go there. If you don't like malls, avoid it. Okay. <laughs> But I was walking through there, it was coming up on Christmas, and there was a guy flying this little helicopter all over. It's like, oh, man. And it was so fun to watch that little helicopter swooping and stuff. So, of course, I had to buy one for my son. He was only two, but he needed a helicopter. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was older than that. But really, the helicopter was for me. And on Christmas morning, I was so excited, and we opened the packages, and we opened the helicopter, and it had no batteries. Isn't that the most infuriating things on Christmas morning and you want to play with it and it had no batteries? The Mosaic Covenant came without batteries. The New Covenant comes with batteries included. Just like the Energizer Bunny. 
it goes and goes and goes. So the Spirit of God comes with the new covenant and he puts the Spirit inside of us so that whatever changes he wants to bring about, he gives us the power to make those changes because of his Spirit. All right, so the heart is the core of who I am. It's, it's everything about me. It's sort of like the operating system of my soul. It's where I think, it's where I feel, it's where I decide, it's where I respond to God, it's where I resist God. It's me, it's the core person of you, the you who will always exist. Isn't that an interesting thought? You will always exist somewhere. And God wants you to exist in his new world to come. And God says, blessed, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And when he's saying that, he's just simply laying out for us that this is what God wants. He wants you and me to become pure at the core. Completely pure. Pure means pure internally, that we are as holy as God is. Pure means that at the core of our being, we have unmixed motives. Pure means that we have a single-minded focus. I want to become like Jesus Christ. Think about our motives. Jesus will come back to this. We always have mixed motives, all of us. You give money. And aren't you congratulating yourself? You know, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But when you give money, your left hand walks over and says, what a good boy you are. Oh, you're so generous. Oh, you're so what? Ah! Mixed motives inside of us all the time. And what God says, what I want to do is I want to get inside. And I want to purify you. The word comes from the word from which we get catharsis. And he wants to come in and he wants to cleanse us. It's a word that was used for the way they cleansed metals. You take gold and you burn it and you burn it until you burn out the, the impurities inside of it. And that's what God is at work doing in our lives. Blessed, he said, are the pure in heart. He's saying, that's the direction I'm taking you. I want you to become more and more like my son. And that is pure in the core of your being. And then he says something astonishing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, the Bible is clear that none of us can see God with our physical eyes and live. The people who even got a glimpse of him collapsed on the ground when that happened. So when he says they will see God, he's obviously speaking about this in a metaphysical sense. That we will see God, we will experience God in some way that is significant to us. And of course, at this point, you go, why would I want to see God? Here's why. Because God is the most significant person to whom we have to relate. And inside of us, there are questions, there are lies, actually, that, that have been fed into us by Satan, by ourselves, by the world around us. And those lies have to be countered. And the only way they can be countered is they need to be displaced when we see God as he really is. The question is, does God care? Does God know me? Is God for me or God against me? And all of the lies that we carry inside of us all the time tell us no. We have this idea that God is this bully up in the sky who simply wants to make our lives miserable. And if you're having fun, he's annoyed. So don't you dare have any fun because God's going to step in and stop you having fun. Unless, of course, it's immoral, but then he does. But you get my point. We have these wrong conceptions of God in our minds. All of us do. And one of the things that has to govern our lives is we need to see God as he really is. Uh-oh. <laughs> Siri just got onto this thing here. Siri, leave me alone. Go away. Stop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In 
fact, that's the Siri interrupted a few weeks. I thought it was my phone. And so it was Siri on here. Okay. So to see God means to conceptualize God as he really is. How do we see God as he really is? The first way we do it and the most significant way is we see God in Jesus. If you want to know what God is really like, you start with the Gospels. And you start with the Gospels and say, I want to know what God is really like. And as you read the Gospels, Jesus will reveal to us what God is really like. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And John writes at the beginning of his gospel, we have seen his glory. He was full of grace and truth. And the lies of the world tell us will take those to two extremes. They'll take it to the truth extreme and tell us that God is just an angry God who wants to punish us because we're not perfect. And so that's the one extreme. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church that camped over here. And you better change your life. You better do this. You must do this. You must be improved. And it was all this law, 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 law. You've got to change your life. If you don't, you're going to go to hell. I mean, literally, that's, that was the message that we got. And you live in total terror of God. Because you know you're never going to be able to measure up. When I told my grandmother that I accepted Christ as my Savior and I was going to heaven, she said, oh, don't say that. You won't know that till the moment you die. It's not true to the scriptures. That's when you take truth and you push it to a place where it's no longer truth. Then you have people who take grace and they push it all the way over here. And it's God doesn't care about how you live. God doesn't care what your sexual orientation is. God doesn't care what you do with your sexual life. God doesn't care about your money. God is just gracious and merciful and soft. This big old grandfather in the sky who can be fooled by us. And that's the problem. These are two extremes. Takes Jesus alone to have grace and truth. Both of them there. He's a God who judges sin, but he does it by taking the punishment himself. What an astonishing God. That he would be full of grace and truth. And so as you look at Jesus, you get to see what God is like. As you get to see the heart of God. Personally reading the Gospels is absolutely critical. Personally reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> I was shocked to find out. We talk about the Gospels and people go, uh, where are the Gospels? Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First four books in the New Testament. Go and read them. And just read with that thought, I want to know what God is like. And the, as you read them, you'll find out what God is like. The book of Hebrews and the book of Colossians tell us the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, you look at the sun, you see what God is like. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of the universe. He's also the savior. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is now seated at God's right hand. He is God. As you look at Jesus, you see what God is. There are other ways we see God. We can see God in his word. As you study the Bible, you discover that there are things that show up that teach you the truth about God. And here's the point. It's objective truth. It's written. You can encounter it there. It's not, it's not dealing with emotions. It's dealing with your intellect. And telling you this is what God is truly like. We can see God in his people. And it's plural, okay? 
You can look at any individual, and every individual is going to not be a perfect representation of Jesus Christ. But when you gather God's people together, it's kind of like you take a whole bunch of little sparks and put them in one place, and they begin to glow. And so as we look at the church, we can see God in his people. One of the things I, I dealt with, with with my kids was that they would see an individual Christian who did something wrong and saw something bad, and they would say, see, that's what a Christian is like. Say, no, 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 you can't look at one person. I said, you've got to look at the whole group, look at the whole church. And on Friday night, we have a dinner every now and then for divorce recovery people. And at our dinner at, at, this, at this group, it suddenly dawned on me. I said, you know what? The one thing I love about Middlelock is when you come here, you see Jesus. Not in any individual, but collectively. You see the mercy, the grace of God portrayed in his people. And one of the women said, how? I said, they have a divorced pastor. And she went, ooh, see? Grace. That's so I can keep my job. I'm just bringing that up. <laughs> we see God in his people. We see God in our own life. Now, you're usually in retrospect. You look back and you can see, wow, that was the hand of God. That was God at work there. So usually it's in retrospect that we can see it. Um, there's a beautiful little book. It's called God Whispers. And God whispers to us often that there are times when you realize, you know what? I just heard a whisper from God evidence that he's there and then of course we'll see him in the new world we'll see him exactly as he is as jesus works on us and changes us the real you will come to know the real him and that's the key we need to really know what god is like so how do we become pure in heart this is such a helpful concept um dallas willard came up with this he calls it participatory grace and it's the two parts God purifies us by His Spirit. We can't purify ourselves. He does it. By His Spirit, though, we pursue purity. In other words, God does it. It's only by His power that we can become pure in heart. But He doesn't do it while you're sleeping. It doesn't do it in us by osmosis. He does it as we then engage with Him, and we make purity something that we do, we do aspire to, that we do want in our lives. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. See the beauty of that? That there is, it is God at work who does the work of purifying and cleansing us and changing us from the inside out. But we make a det determination, I want to go there. I want to move in that direction. How do we do that? Paul says in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so our brains come into it as well. So that your think, the thinking, what I read, what I see, the movies I go to, the, the things that I watch, that's how I feed the, 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 the purity concept into my being and into my body is by thinking about those things. And David prayed this prayer, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's what God wants from us. So one of the writers that I was studying this week had a great idea. He said, you're going to wash your hands several times a day. So when you go to wash your hands, think of this. The psalm we read, Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In Hebrew, there's a thing called parallelism, where the two thoughts are, are they're separate statements, but they mean the same thing. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And clean hands meant internally clean, not physically clean. And so he gets a suggestion. You're going to wash your hands several times a day. And as you're washing your hands, stand there and just for a moment go, okay, Lord God, is there something you need to cleanse inside of me? Is there something that needs to be washed? And the cool thing about that is it hangs with us. In fact, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> you can't wash your hands now without going, oh, all right, what else needs to be cleaned? Okay. Jesus said, if you let me into your life, it's going to change. It's going to reshape you in ways that you have no idea was coming. You're going to become aware of sin that you never thought was sin. But when you become aware of it, he says, I will be there to cleanse you. And I will be there to completely wash it out of you. And when I make you aware of that, it's because I'm purifying you, making you more and more just like my son. And that's our goal for our church, is that we, more and more people, would become more and more just like Jesus. Let's pray together.